Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Due to the sensitive nature of the content discussed in today's episode, parental discretion is advised. Today we're reading from Beautiful Joe by Margaret Marshall Saunders. Chapter 18. Mrs. Wood's Poultry. After breakfast, Mrs. Woods put on a large apron and going into the kitchen said, Have you any scraps for the hens, Adele? Be sure not to give me anything salty. The French girl gave her a dish of food, and then Mrs. Wood asked Miss Laura to go and see her chickens, and away we went to the poultry house. On the way, we saw Mr. Wood. He was sitting on the step of the tool shed, cleaning his gun. "'Is the dog dead?' asked Miss Laura. "'Yes,' he replied. She sighed and said, "'Poor creature. I am sorry he had to be killed. Uncle, what is the most merciful way to kill a dog? Sometimes when they get old, they should be put out of the world.' "'You can shoot them,' he said, "'poison them, or put them in an electric cage. "'In shooting, there's a right place at which to aim. "'It's a little to one side of the top of the skull. "'If you'll remind me, I'll show you a circular that I have "'that shows the proper way to kill animals. "'The American Humane Education Society in Boston puts it out. "'You don't know anything about the slaughtering of animals, Laura, "'and it's well you don't. "'There's an awful amount of cruelty practiced, "'and practiced by some people that think themselves pretty good.' I wouldn't have my lambs killed the way my father has his for a kingdom. I'll never forget the first one I saw butchered. I wouldn't feel worse at a hanging now. And that white ox, Hattie, you remember me telling you about him. He had to be killed, and father sent me for the butcher. I was only a lad, and I was all of a shudder to have the life of the creature I had known taken from him. The butcher, stupid clown, gave him several blows before he struck the right place. Miss Laura turned away, and Mrs. Woods followed her, saying, "'If you ever want to kill a cat, Laura, give it cyanide of potassium. "'I killed an old, poor, sick cat for Mrs. Wyndham the other day. "'We put the potassium in a long-handled wooden spoon "'and dropped it onto the cat's tongue, as near the throat as we could. "'Poor pussy. She died in a few seconds. "'Here we are at the hen house, or one of the hen houses.' "'Don't you keep all your hens together?' asked Miss Laura.' "'Only in the winter time, said Mrs. Wood. "'I divide my flock in the spring. "'Part of them stay here, "'and part go to the orchards "'to live in little movable houses "'that we put about in different places. "'I feed each flock morning and evening "'at their own little house. "'They know they'll get no food "'even if they come to my house, "'so they stay home. "'And they know they'll get no food between times, "'so all day long they pick and scratch in the orchard "'and destroy so many bugs and insects "'that it more than pays for the trouble "'of keeping them there.' "'Doesn't this flock want to mix up with the other?' asked Miss Laura, as she stepped into the little wooden house. "'No, they seem to understand. I keep my eye on them for a while at first, and they soon find that they are not to fly either over the garden fence or the orchard fence. They roam over the farm and pick up what they can get. There's a good deal of sense in hens if one manages them properly. I love them because they are such good mothers.' We were in the little wooden house by this time, and I looked around it in surprise. It was better than some of the poor people's houses in Fairport. The walls were white and clean. So were the little ladders that led up to different kinds of roosts where the fowls sat at night. 
Some roosts were thin and round, and some were broad and flat. Mrs. Woods said that the broad ones were for a heavy fowl called the Brahma. Every part of the little house was almost as light as it outdoors, on account of the large windows. Miss Laura spoke of it. "'Why, Auntie, I never saw such a light henhouse.' Mrs. Woods was diving into a partly shut-in place, where it was not so light and where the nests were. At Miss Laura's remark, she straightened herself, her face redder than ever, and looked at the windows with a pleased smile. "'Yes, there's not a hen house in New Hampshire with such big windows. Whenever I look at them, I think of my mother's hens, and wish that they could have had a place like this. They would have thought themselves in hen's paradise.' When I was a girl, we didn't know that hens love light and heat, and all winter they used to sit in the dark hen coop, and the cold was so bad that their combs would freeze stiff and the tops of them would drop off. We never thought about it. If we had any sense, we might have watched them on a fine day go sit on the compost heap and sun themselves, and they would have concluded that if they liked light and heat outside, they'd like it inside. Poor biddies. They were so cold they wouldn't lay us any eggs in the winter. "'You take a great deal of interest in your poultry, don't you, Auntie?' asked Miss Laura. "'Well, yes, indeed, and well I may. "'I'll show you my brown leghorn, Jenny, that lays eggs enough in a year "'to pay for the newspapers I take to keep myself posted in poultry matters. "'I buy all my own clothes with my hen money, "'and lately I've opened a bank account, "'for I want to save up enough to start a few stands of bees.' Even if I didn't want to be kind to my hens, it would pay me to be so for the sake of the profit they yield. Of course, they're quite a lot of trouble. Sometimes they get vermin on them, and I have to grease them and spray carbolic acid on them and try some of my numerous cures. Then I must keep ashes and dust wallows for them, and be very particular about my eggs when hens are sitting, and see that hens come off regularly for food and exercise. Oh, there are a hundred things I have to think of, but I always say to anyone who thinks of raising poultry, if you are going into the business of, for the purpose of making money, it pays to take care of them. There's one thing I notice, said Miss Laura, and that is your drinking fountains must be a great deal better than the shallow pans I have seen some people use for their hens. Dirty things they are, said Mrs. Wood. I wouldn't have one of them. I don't think there's anything worse for hens than drinking dirty water. My hens must have as clean water as I drink myself, and in winter I heat it for them. Now, let us go and see my beautiful bronze turkeys. They don't need any houses, for they roost in the trees year-round. We found the flock of turkeys, and Miss Laura admired their changeable colors. Some of them were very large, and I did not like them, for the gobblers ran at me and made a dreadful noise in their throats. Every place she took us was as clean as possible. "'No one can be successful in raising poultry in large numbers,' she said, "'unless they keep their quarters clean and comfortable. "'As yet we had seen no hens except the few on the nests,' "'and Miss Laura said, "'Where are they? I should like to see them.' "'They're coming,' said Mrs. Wood. "'It is just their breakfast time, and they are as punctual as clockwork. "'They go off early in the morning to scratch about a little for themselves first. "'As she spoke, she stepped off the plank walk and looked off toward the fields.' Miss Laura burst out laughing. Away beyond the barns, the hens were coming. Seeing Mrs. Wood standing there, they thought they were late, and began to run and fly, jumping over each other's backs and stretching out their necks in the state of a great excitement. Some of their legs seemed sticking straight out behind them. It was very funny to see them. 
They were a fine-looking lot of poultry, mostly white, with glossy feathers and bright eyes. They greedily ate all the food scattered to them, and Mrs. Woods said, They think I've changed their breakfast time, and tomorrow they'll come earlier. And yet people say that hens have no sense. Chapter 19. A Band of Mercy a few evenings after we came to Dingley Farm, Mrs. Wood and Miss Laura were sitting out on the veranda, and I was lying at their feet. "'Auntie,' said Miss Laura, "'what do those letters mean by that silver pin you wear with that piece of ribbon?' "'You know what the white ribbon means, don't you?' asked Mrs. Woods. "'Yes, that you are a temperance woman, doesn't it?' "'It does. And the star pin means I'm a member of the Band of Mercy. "'Do you know what a Band of Mercy is?' "'No,' said Miss Laura.' "'How strange! I should think you should have several in Fairport. "'A cripple boy, the son of a Boston artist, started this one here. "'It has done a great deal of good. "'There is a meeting tomorrow, and I will take you to it if you like.' "'It was on Monday that Mrs. Woods had this talk with Miss Laura, "'and the next afternoon, after all the work was done, "'they got ready to walk to the village. "'May Joe go?' asked Miss Laura. "'Certainly,' said Mrs. Wood. "'He is such a good dog that he won't be any trouble.' I was very glad to hear this, and trotted along by them down the lane to the road. The lane was a very cool and pleasant place. There were tall trees growing on each side, and under them, among the grass, pretty wildflowers were peeping out to look at us as we went by. Mrs. Wood and Miss Laura talked about the Band of Mercy all the way to the village. Miss Laura was much interested, and said she would like to start one in Fairport. "'That is a very simple thing,' said Mrs. Wood. "'All you have to do is write the pledge at the top of a piece of paper. "'I will try to be kind to all harmless living creatures "'and try to protect them from cruel usage "'and get thirty people to sign it. "'That makes a band. "'I have formed two or three bands by keeping slips of paper ready "'and getting people that come to visit me to sign them. "'I call them correspondence bands, "'for they are too far apart to meet.' I send the members Band of Mercy papers, and I get such nice letters from them telling me of kind things they do for animals. A Band of Mercy in a place is a splendid thing. There's the greatest difference in Riverdale since this one was started. A few years ago, when a man beat or ill-used his horse and anyone interfered, he said, This horse is mine. I'll do what I like with him. Most people thought he was right, but now they're all for the poor horse, and there isn't a man anywhere around who would dare to abuse an animal. It's all the children. They're doing a grand work, and I say it's a good thing for them. Since we've studied this subject, it's enough to frighten one to read what is sent us about our American boys and girls. Do you know, Laura, that with all our boasting about our schools and colleges that are really wonderful, we're turning out an alarming number of criminals. The cause of it is said to be lack of proper training for the youth of our land. Immigration has something to do with it, too. We're thinking too much about educating the mind and forgetting about the heart and soul. So I say now, while we've got all our future population in our schools, let us try to slip in something between the geography and history and grammar that will go a little deeper and touch them so much that when they are grown up and go out into the world, they will carry with them lessons of love and goodwill to men. A little child is such a tender thing. You can bend it any way you like. Speaking of this heart education of children as combined with mind education, I notice many school teachers say there is nothing better than to give them lessons on kindness to animals. Children who are taught to love and protect dumb creatures will be kind to their fellow men when they grow up. I was very much pleased with this talk between Mrs. Wood and Miss Laura, and kept close to them so that I should not miss a word. 
As we went along, houses began to appear here and there, set back from the road among the trees. Soon they got quite close together, and I saw some shops. This was the village of Riverdale, and nearly all the buildings were along this winding street. The river was away back of the village. We had already driven there several times. We passed the school on our way. It was a square white building, standing in the middle of a large yard. Boys and girls, with their arms full of books, were hurrying down the steps and coming into the street. Two quite big boys came behind us, and Mrs. Woods turned around and spoke to them and asked if they were going to the beaning of the Band of Mercy. "'Oh, yes, ma'am,' said the younger one. "'I've got a recitation. Don't you remember?' "'Yes, yes, excuse me for forgetting,' said Mrs. Woods, with her jolly laugh. "'And here are Dolly, and Jenny, and Martha,' she went on. "'As some little girls came running out of a house we were passing. "'The little girls joined us, and looked so hard at my head and stump of a tail, "'and my fine collar, I felt quite shy, and walked with my head against Miss Laura's dress. "'She stooped down and patted me, and then I felt as if I didn't care how much they stared. "'Miss Laura never forgot me.' No matter how earnestly she was talking, or playing a game, or doing anything, she always stopped occasionally to give me a word or look to show that she knew I was near. Mrs. Woods paused in front of a building on the main street. A great many boys and girls were going in, and we went with them. We found ourselves in a large room with a platform at one end of it. There were some chairs on this platform and a small table. A boy stood by this table with his hand on a bell. Presently he rang it, and then everyone kept still. Mrs. Woods whispered to Miss Laura that this boy was the president of the band, and the young man with the pale face and curly hair who sat in front of him was Mr. Maxwell, the artist's son who had formed this band of mercy. The lad who presided had a ringing, pleasant voice. He said they would begin their meeting by singing a song. There was an organ near the platform, and a young girl played on it, while all the other boys and girls stood up and sang very sweetly and clearly. Then the president asked for the report of their last meeting. A little girl, blushing and hanging her head, came forward, and read what was written on a paper that she held in her hand. The president made some remarks after she had finished, and then everyone had to vote. It was just like a meeting of grown people, and I was surprised to see how good these children were. They did not frolic or laugh, but all seemed sober and listened attentively. After the voting was over, the president called upon John Turner to give a recitation. This was the boy whom we'd met on the way there. He walked up to the platform, made a bow, and said he had learned two stories for his recitation out of the paper, Our Dumb Animals. One story was about a horse, and the other about a dog, and he thought they were two of the best animal stories on record. He would tell the horse story first. A man in Missouri had to go to Nebraska to see about some land. He went on horseback, on a horse he had trained himself, and that came at his whistle like a dog. On getting into Nebraska, he came to a place where there were two roads. One went by a river, and the other went over the hill. The man saw the traffic went over the hill, but he thought he'd take the river road. He didn't know there was quicksand across it, and people couldn't use it in the spring and summer. There used to be a signboard to tell strangers about it, but it had been taken away. The man got off his horse to let him graze, and walked along until he got so far ahead of the horse that he had to sit down and wait for him. Suddenly he found he was on quicksand. His feet had sunk in the sand, and he could not get them out. He whistled for his horse and shouted for help, but no one came. He could hear some young people singing out on the river, but they could not hear him. The terrible sand drew him in almost to his waist, and he thought he was lost. At that moment, the horse came running up and stood by his master. 
The man was too low down to get hold of the saddle or bridle, so he took a hold of the horse's tail and told him to go. The horse gave an awful pull and landed his master on safe ground. Everybody clapped or stamped when this story was finished and called out, The dog story! The dog story! The boy bowed and smiled and began again. You all know what a roundup of cattle is, so I need not explain. Once a man down south was going to have one, and he and his boys and friends were talking it over. There was an ugly black steer in the herd, and they were wondering whether their old yellow dog would be able to manage him. The dog's name was Teague, and he lay and listened wisely to their talk. The next day there was a scene of great confusion. The steer raged and tore about and would allow no one to come within whip touch of him. Teague, who had always been brave, skulked about for a while, and then, as if he had got up a little spirit, he made a run at the steer. The steer sighted him, gave a bellow, and lowering his horns, ran at him. Teague turned tail, and the young men that owned him were nearly frantic. They'd been praising him, and thought they were going to have it proved false. Their father called out, "'Don't shoot Teague until you see where he's running to.' The dog ran right to the cattle pen. The steer was so enraged that he never noticed where he was going, and dashed in after him. Teague leaped the wall and came back to the gate, barking for the men to come and shut the steer in. They closed the gate and petted Teague, and bought him a collar with a silver plate. The boy was loudly cheered, and went to his seat. The president said he would like to have remarks made about these two stories. Several children put up their hands, and he asked each one to speak in turn. One said that if the man's horse had had a docked tail, his master wouldn't have been able to reach it and would have perished. Another said that if the man hadn't treated his horse kindly, he never would have come at his whistle and stood over him to see what he could do to help him. A third child said that the people on the river weren't as quick at hearing the voice of the man in trouble as the horse was. When this talk was over, the president called for some stories of foreign animals. Another boy came forward, made his bow, and said in a short, abrupt voice, "'My uncle's name is Henry Worthington. He is an Englishman, and once he was a soldier in India. One day, when he was hunting in the Punjab, he saw a mother monkey carrying a little dead baby monkey. Six months after, he was in the same jungle, saw a same monkey still carrying dead baby monkey, all shriveled up. Mother monkey loved her baby monkey and wouldn't give it up.' The boy went to his seat, and the president, with a queer look on his face, said, "'That's a very good story, Ronald, if it is true.' None of the children laughed, but Mrs. Woods looked amused. Miss Laura bit her lip, and there was a smile on Mr. Maxwell's face. The boy who told the story looked very angry. He jumped up again. "'My uncle's a true man, Phil Dodge, and never told a lie in his life.' The president remained standing, his face a deep scarlet, and a tall boy at the back of the room got up and said, Mr. President, what would be impossible in this climate might be possible in a hot country like India. Doesn't heat sometimes shrivel and preserve things? The president's face cleared. Thank you for the suggestion, he said. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you know there is a rule in the band that only true stories are to be told here.
Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Visit our website at www.enchantedlibrary.net to see our past books or to connect with us on Facebook. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.